It's the only book in all of the Bible where the name of God is never once mentioned. But you cannot read it without continually being conscious of God's presence. And you see his sovereign, omnipotent, providential fingerprints everywhere you move. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we complete a message begun last week entitled, Standing Firm in Difficult Days. It's an overview of the book of Esther, which looks at the risk taken by Esther during a time when her people were at great risk of being annihilated. Besides looking at the courage of this young woman, this account is an encouragement to Christians to also be strong and courageous during days of great moral decline and godlessness. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, we find Esther's cousin Mordecai appealing to her on three levels to approach the king and petition the safety of the Israelites. Our text is from chapter 4, verse 13. Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Now, when you come to chapter 8, it's very clear that the edict that Haman writes affects every single Jew wherever you live in the Persian Empire. Whether you live in Susa, the capital, or back in Jerusalem, clearly Esther 8.2 indicates that all 127 provinces are going to be impacted from India all the way to Ethiopia. So first, Mordecai reminds Esther that being a resident of the palace does not guarantee that she is going to be delivered from death. Haman is going to find out you're a Jew. That's what he's saying in essence. And when he finds out you are a Jew, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you must be executed. Again, verse 14, Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. So secondly, Mordecai wants Esther to know that the Jewish race is going to survive. How does he know that? Because God made an unconditional unilateral covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. You cannot destroy the Jewish people. The church has not replaced Israel. God is going to culminate history through Israel. You cannot wipe them out because God's going to bring the Messiah through Israel. And Mordecai knows that. He knows that his people cannot be annihilated. And in essence, he's saying, look, God promised to bring the Messiah through us, the Hebrew people. And if God doesn't use you, Esther, then he's going to use someone else. And so then he adds here in verse 14, and who knows? whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's his third reason that he gives her for responding. Look, Esther, God is sovereign. God is in control. And if you're not willing to get involved and to pay the price, God will get the job done. He just won't use you. He'll use someone else. Have you ever considered that you are living at this time in human history for such a time as this? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that of, in all of the centuries since Adam, that you are in the 21st century, what the scripture clearly defines as the latter days before the Messiah comes? Because he said in the latter days he would gather Israel from the four corners of the earth. Have you ever considered that you are in that time frame? Moms and dads, have you considered that you may be raising the next generation, if not the last generation, 
nation of Esther's and Mordecai's for such a time as this? Marines and those of you who are in the Navy, has it ever occurred to you that God has put you in that platoon for such a time as this? Some of you older adults, has it ever occurred to you that a scripture commands you to do that you are to build into the next generation for such a time as this? Or maybe God has just prepared us all to be a part of the final generation for such a time as this. I think this is an exciting day to be alive because the darker the world gets, the brighter we can shine. People say, well, pastor, the church in America is failing. According to who? May I remind you that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail about it, against it. God is building his church. It is right on schedule. God is not shaken by the events of these days. The great danger is that you will miss out. You will miss the opportunity for God to use you in this time. And so the key, brothers and sisters, to finding out where God is working is to look around, see where he's moving, and then join him in that. Have an impact with the people of God who care about the things that God cares about. What will happen at the end of your life? How will you measure whether it was really well spent? Do you measure it by how long you live or how well you lived? You see, Scripture does not measure the value of its life by its duration, but by its donation. By the impact, you say, I've blown it and I'm already 70. Then make a difference until the day God calls you home. So Esther, by her obedience, demonstrated she knew the value of life. Secondly, Esther knew the value of death. Not only did she know the value of life, she knew the value of death. And I want you to see there's a cause-effect relationship. You see, until you understand what the purpose of life is all about, then death will never make sense to you. I want you to notice how Esther understood the relationship between the two here in chapter 4 and verse 15. We read that Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. She knew she could not carry out this plan in her own strength. She needed God's empowerment. She knew she needed God's victory. And so together with the people of God, they seek the Lord in fasting and by application prayer. Now notice verse 16. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Even though it's against Persian law, I'm going to do it even if it costs me my life you learn a whole lot about a person by what they're willing to die for, what they are willing to give their life for. And the early church knew when they were opposed by the authorities of the day that they had to follow the living God no matter what. They were told by the authorities, you're not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And they replied in Acts 4 and verse, uh, Acts chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And then in verse 20, they said, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen or heard. If you remember, in the fifth chapter, it records how they were dragged into court. And the officials said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in, his in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. These early believers were willing, if necessary, to pay the ultimate price. 
You see, one of the great misconceptions of this culture is that we are in the land of the living, headed to the land of the dying. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are in the land of the dying, headed to the land of living. Man will live forever and ever and ever, either in eternity with God in heaven or in eternity in hell. And the truth gripped the early church, and this truth gripped Queen Esther. One prominent businessman said at the end of his life, I spent my whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find that my ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Let me ask you, what are the things that grip you? What are the things you live for? What do you think of when you wake up in the morning? What drives you during the week? Go home and make a list of those things and put them into the mirror of Scripture and see if your passions match the passions of Almighty God. Have you ever come to appreciate the value of life and death from the point of view that God presents in Scripture? Now, there's a third component to moral courage that I want you to see. Yes, there's an intellectual opponent. Yes, there's an emotional component. But then there's the volitional component to moral courage. The volitional component. Not only do I need to know the will of God as found in Scripture and to feel the will of God that is not just some head trip but something that grips my heart, but I need to do the will of God in Esther was willing to do. She was willing at the risk of her own life to pay the ultimate cost. Notice two things. First, Esther did what she knew to be right. She did what she knew to be right. We learn that beginning here in chapter 5 in verse 1. Follow along through this section of scripture. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came there and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And they drank their wine at the banquet. The king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Now Haman thinks, of course, that he is going to be honored. So we read here in verse 9, then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So his wife and his friends give Haman advice. Look at verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows, 50 cubits high made in the morning. Ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet 
And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now, of course, in chapter 6, you discover that the king is having a case of divine insomnia. God won't let him sleep. And so, in order to fall asleep, he orders one of his servants to come and to read to him the chronicles of his kingdom. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Haraserus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So here's the records. They're being read. Harasserus hears in the transcripts of how Mordecai spared his life. And it grabs his attention, and he immediately wants to know how he was honored and rewarded. And they find out nothing's been done. So the next day, the king asks Haman, this Jewish man, this Jewish leader, who's over all of the provinces, kind of a prime minister under the king of sorts, to honor someone. What would you do, Haman? What would you do? If you wanted to honor someone. And so Haman, of course, thinks, the text says, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And so he says, well, king, this is what I would do. I'd put the royal robe on that person's back. I'd put the royal crown on that person's head. I'd let him ride the king's horse through the streets and proclaim through one of his attendants, this is what the king does for those who honor him. And so the king says to Haman, fantastic idea, now go do that for Mordecai. Well, of course, that day later at the banquet, Esther asked the king for her request. Look at chapter 7 and verse 2. And the king said to Esther, on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Haraserus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. And so Haman begs Esther for his life. Look at verse 9. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king and the king said hang him hang Haman on it and so Haman is hung on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai and that's the way it always is because sooner or later God is not mocked whatever a man sows that he will reap look our nation is laughing at God we think everything is fine we started raising our fists in his face and we said God didn't create the world evolution did and God says when a nation does that I'll give them over when they deny his eternal attributes his divine 
divine nature. I'll give them over to sensuality. We continue to raise our fists until God gave them over, the scripture says, to homosexuality. We continue to raise our fists and God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And that's where we are today. We are calling evil good and good evil. The very things that God hates that he finds to be an abomination, we are sanctioning as something that should be protected and something that should be lauded. And as long as my bank account is full, as long as my job is secure, as long as I can pay the bills, as long as I have a good uh, economy in which to live, I'm going to live in my adultery. I don't care what God says. I'm going to live and drink the world's drink. I don't care what the world says. I'm going to endorse abortion. I don't care what the world says. I'm going to affirm the LGBTQIA lifestyle. I don't care what God Almighty says. And my friend, we are building our own gallows to hang ourselves on it. Go home and read chapters 8 to 10. It's the record of history, and it's absolutely fascinating. Now, do not miss, after what Esther did, she knew what she knew to be right. Esther then gave God all the glory. She gave God all the glory. Fast forward, chapter 9, verse uh, 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. In these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. God sovereignly protected them. And Mordecai and Esther wanted to give God all the credit. And he never wanted the Jew, they never wanted the Jews to forget what God did. And so they institute the Feast of Purim. It's not like Passover or Tabernacles or Pentecost. It's not prescribed in the law of Moses. It's much like the Feast of Lights or what we call Hanukkah. Unfortunately, today for many Jewish people, the Feast of Purim is just like our Mardi Gras because the nation is largely in unbelief. But here's this fascinating little book that God includes in the canon of Scripture. It's the only book in all of the Bible where the name of God is never once mentioned, but you cannot read it without continually being conscious of God's presence, and you see his sovereign, omnipotent, providential fingerprints everywhere you move. Let me suggest three applications as we close our time off this morning. Three applications from this book. Number one, a believer who is standing firm will be a witness to the lost. You want to ask yourself today, do you have moral courage? Well, a believer who is standing firm and in their moral courage will be a witness to the loss. Now, please understand, it's our moral distinctiveness that allows us to be a witness to an unbelieving world. If you continue reading, you will find that the Gentiles who are living in the Persian Empire recognize the greatness of Israel's God. Listen to these words in Ezra chapter 8 and verse 17. We are told in each... In every province, and in each, in every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Now understand, this is not some feigned conversion. These are not Gentiles masquerading as Jews. 
These are Gentiles because Israel at this point are functioning the way they need to function, a light to the Gentiles who are becoming Jews. Not in the ethnic sense. You cannot become a Jew ethnically if you are a Gentile. But in a religious sense, and Judaism is described on two levels. There's those who are descendants of Abraham, and that's determined in Scripture by the father, not by the mother. Now today in the oral law that the Jews practice, they say Jewishness is determined by the mother, not in Holy Scripture. That's why oral law is not authoritative. It might be helpful, but it's not authoritative. It is the Scripture alone, sola scriptura, the books of the Old Testament that teach that Jewishness is determined by the dad. And so understand, if you are a Jew, you can no more become Chinese than a Chinese person could become a Jew. But if you are a Gentile, you can embrace the God of Israel, and that's what we see happening here. Just like Rahab, she could see God's hand in delivering Israel out of the land of Egypt, and she in turn turned to the living God. And here are these people who see the prayer and the fasting of the Jewish people who moves the hand of God Almighty, and many of them are converted because of it. And that's what we need today. We need people who are distinctively different, unlike the modern church growth movement that tells us that if we become like the world, the world will like us and they'll embrace us and you'll get the trash and these mega churches that mean absolutely nothing in our day and do nothing for God and change no one for the Lord. But listen, God has always had his remnant. He's always had his people. And if you are indeed a person of moral courage, you will be distinctively different. You will be a witness to the lost world. Secondly, a believer who is standing firm will take action. They will take action. That's the nature of moral courage. It learns what God says and then it does something with it. And so God does not hand the Hebrew people victory. They have to do something with this deliverance. And so we read in chapter 9 and verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now that's an important principle. It's a principle that runs all the way through scripture the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do, not just to hear, but to do according to all that is written in it. And then God, of course, gives us the prid quo. He says, and then, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. It does not mean by success that you may be successful from the world's point of view, but you will have success from the way God looks and evaluates your life. It doesn't mean that you just sit on your hands. No, you take action. Noah didn't sit in his driveway for 120 years. He got out there and he built that boat. Joseph didn't sit on his hands during those seven years of plenty. He prepared for the seven years of famine, and we don't need to sit on our hands. Some evangelicals said, we don't need to go out and vote. You can just stay home. You don't like Trump. Stay home. Stay home. It only took 10% of the evangelical vote to slide for us to lose the election if indeed we have lost it. 
because of men who are unwilling to be disliked. Look, I've had people already who told me they are leaving the church because I've taken a stance. I have not taken a chance, a stance on Democratic versus Republican issues. I'm taking a stance on moral issues that have entered into the Christian church. And on that, every born-again, blood-bought believer should take a stance. Third and finally, a believer who is standing firm will be gripped by the truth. Friends, God included this book because he knew that the people at the end of the age would desperately need it. And we need believers today who know the will of God. Believers who feel passionately about the will of God, but we need believers who will do the will of God. You see, you can talk about it all you want, but talk is cheap. We need to be gripped by the truth. You can talk about becoming a Christian and you can die tonight and go to hell. You can talk about sharing your faith with your relatives and your friends and then never do it. You can talk about getting involved and caring for people through adult Bible fellowships and then never attend. You can talk about joining this church and never do it. You can talk about being baptized and never obey. You can talk about tithing and never carry through. You can talk, 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 but talk is cheap. And so we need people who not only know the truth, but people who are gripped by the truth. And the curse of an apathetic, narcissistic, existential, self-centered society are people who are hell-bent on their own needs and could really not care deeply about the things that God cares about. Mordecai wasn't taken back by the fact that he could have been killed. He was willing to obey no matter what, even as Esther was. So do you have a grip on the truth? And does the truth have a grip on you? That's a very important question to ask this morning. I'm not asking you about your knowledge level. I'm asking you about your obedience quotient. And so what will your life mean when you come to the end of your life? You come to those final days and you look back over your life, however much time God has given you, what will it take for you to be able to say, I have lived a life of significance? We are living in days where people need to know the will of God, they need to feel the will of God, and they need to practice God's will. And Esther was willing to put her, her life in the place of death to save the Jewish people. And praise God, Jesus Christ put himself in the place of death. He was pierced through for our iniquity so that you could become a forgiven person, a changed person with life eternal in your heart forever and ever. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And you know the culture that we are living in. And we thank you that you are not shaken by the events of these days that you are sovereignly ruling in the heavens above, that whatever happens to this nation should not change what our people are to do as believers in the living God. Father, we pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who've never met Christ, who do not have assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that their home is in heaven. Help them to admit that they are bankrupt, that they can do nothing to merit or earn salvation. Help them to put their faith where you put their sin on the Lord Jesus. Help them to call upon him that they might be forgiven and changed. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone in the recesses of their heart today. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. 
And then help that someone, Father, to openly, publicly confess him before men. But for those of us who've crossed that line, Father, help us to do some personal inventory today to ask ourselves if we are people who stand firm with moral courage. And if not, may we make the changes that we might reflect the Lord Jesus, that men and women and boys and girls might see our good works to bring glory to you, our Father who's in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message from the book of Esther entitled, Standing Firm in Difficult Days, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program STF20. Things are looking better and better for our fall trip to Israel. The Israeli government has inoculated almost two-thirds of their population against the COVID-19 virus, and plans are in the works to reopen tourism in the Holy Land. If you'd like to join us for an 11-day trip to the Middle East, we'll be offering two separate excursions in late September and early October. Join Dr. Brogy as he helps bring the Bible alive as fellow travelers walk through many of the places occupied by King David, Moses, the Apostles, and of course, Jesus himself. All the details are online at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we begin a mini-series from the book of Hebrews on God's call to grow. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>